Welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. My name is Nicholas Schaefer. We are in season six, which, as a reminder, I'm calling How I Try to Figure Things Out, a personal and informal jaunt through some aspects of quantitative reasoning. At some point, I'll probably stop using that subtitle because it's long and awful, but it does make the point of what I'm trying to convey this season. In the first episode, I talked a bit about one of the first questions that I asked myself when I was in high school that set me on the path that I think I'm still on today. And that was, what's the difference between a human and a chair? And it got me thinking about differences between living and non-living things, and how I might try to answer that question for myself. And as we progress through the season, we'll go through some aspects of quantitative reasoning and also follow roughly my own chronological journey through these topics. And so, today's episode, episode two, is called Theories and Models. And we're going to start again where I'm in high school. And when I was in high school, at the particular high school I went to, they had a special program going on where at the time, and I'm not sure what the case is now, the normal order of science classes for people in high school was to take one year of biology, then one year of chemistry, and then maybe one year of physics, and then have some kind of science elective perhaps in the final year. The program that I went through flipped this on its head and started with two years of physics. So basic physics and then advanced physics. And then students went on to study chemistry and biology if they were on that track. And this, as you may remember from last episode, really corresponds with the way I think about the hierarchy of sciences, where physics is dealing with more basic constituents and then chemistry picks up from physics, and of course, biology is informed by chemistry. So when I went to do my undergraduate, I was looking for a university where I could study three things, as I recall. One was physics. Another was philosophy, because I was still interested in philosophy at that time. And the third was ping pong. Now, I wasn't really planning on studying ping pong per se, but ping pong was one of my favorite extracurricular activities. And so I was looking for a school where I could do these three things. And I ended up at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and swapping out uh, badminton for ping pong in terms of my main hobby and my main sport, and essentially dropping philosophy and really diving headlong into physics, but also into classes that covered the rest of the hierarchy that I described in the first episode. So when I was there, I took computer science classes, mathematics classes, physics, chemistry, molecular biology, and astronomy. And that, as I mentioned, in my mind, covers most of the hierarchy of the sciences. So when it came time to go to graduate school, 
I was looking for a field where in graduate school, you have to specialize somewhat, but I was looking for a field where I could integrate many of the things that I had learned. And so I was looking a lot at uh, schools that had good biophysics programs because biophysics programs, of course, the research area, the topics are mostly related to biology, but the methods come from physics. And of course, that involves a lot of mathematics and computation. So that was really the, the sweet spot for what I was looking for when I was entering graduate school. And I ended up in the lab of Peter Wallenes, who is a kind of grandfather figure in the field of protein folding. He did groundbreaking work in the 1980s on physical theories related to protein folding. And when I joined his group, he was certainly already very well established. And I recall one of the first things that he told me as I was getting started with research in his group is he said, let's do a theory of, and then he said, something related to some protein biophysics topic. And that phrase really struck me at the time because as an undergraduate, you learn theories, but you don't really make them. And you may learn a little bit about the people who came up with the ideas, but I probably would have benefited from studying those stories more than I did during my undergraduate. Now, ironically, I did try to take a history of physics class, but this was a complete disaster, at least for me. It was taught by a guy who I thought was set on teaching people that physics is just a social construct, and, and I found it completely unhelpful. I think that if I had taken a sort of more straightforward history of physics class where they went through the actual history of the people coming up with the ideas and the lives that they were living and the competing ideas that were present at the time, then I would have caught on to this a little bit earlier. But as it was, theory for me as an undergraduate your goal was to learn all of the theories that, that are out there and then maybe apply them to do something useful. But that got turned on its head for me when I joined my graduate school and Peter said, let's do a theory of something. And without realizing it, I had been thinking of theories as just things that people a long time ago made up and that we just used. But in the end, after five years in graduate school, I worked on many theories of different phenomena, and those exercises really helped me to understand firsthand what a theory is. So the title of this episode is Theories and Models, and I will use those two terms more or less interchangeably. So one definition of a model that I heard recently that I really thought was useful is that it's a simplified copy of something. Think of a toy model car that you might have had as a kid. It has some features of a car. It looks like a car. And depending on how much you paid for it, maybe even the doors can open and close. But it's certainly not a fully functioning car. It's a model. And the particular kind of model that I'm going to be thinking the most about here are quantitative models. Now, theories and models don't necessarily need to be quantitative, but they will be our focus here. Quantitative models are expressed in the language of mathematics, of course, and the field with the deepest history of generating and leveraging quantitative models is the natural sciences. So let's take an example. Let's look at the classical mechanics as a way to start to figure out what a theory consists of. Classical mechanics is a theory about how macroscopic objects move. So we see right away that theories will have certain bedrock concepts. In this case, those concepts include time, 
space, objects, and objects will have properties like position, velocity, acceleration, mass, and force. Because those are the basic concepts that you need if you want to describe how things move. What else might we need besides these basic concepts? We'll need to know how these concepts relate to each other. So again, in the case of classical mechanics, you have Newton's three laws as providing a very good start for how these different concepts relate to each other. And as you may or may not recall from your physics class, these three laws are basically the first law describes inertia. So the tendency for objects at rest to stay at rest and for objects in motion to stay in motion unless they're acted on by a force. The second law is the equivalence between forces and the product of mass and acceleration. So F equals MA, probably the most famous of the three laws. And then the third law is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so we have these basic concepts now, and these three laws provide some relationships between these concepts. Built into this choice of concepts and relationships are a set of assumptions. The assumptions will limit the scope and applicability of the theory that you're applying. In the case of classical mechanics, it tends to work well for macroscopic objects that are moving slowly compared to the speed of light. If you go into different limits, like for very tiny objects, microscopic objects, you'll start to need quantum mechanics. If you start to accelerate an object so much that it approaches some considerable fraction of the speed of light in its velocity, then you'll need Einstein's theory of special relativity. But classical mechanics is very useful in our daily lives because we're not usually in those two limits. So our bodies are certainly macroscopic objects. Most things that we interact with directly are macroscopic. And certainly even the fastest objects that we encounter in our daily lives, let's say like an airplane, airplanes move well below the speed of light. And so classical mechanics will do just fine. So that's a, a description of the basic elements of an existing, a fairly famous theory. What does it mean to do a theory of something, like Peter suggested to me as I was starting graduate school? In this context, doing a theory amounts to proposing and testing a quantitative model of some certain phenomenon. Based on what we saw for classical mechanics, this means uh, that we need to come up with a quantitative model and that will involve defining what concepts we're working with and also defining the relationships between the concepts. And strictly speaking, that might be enough to make a theory or a model. But in practice, people will always be wondering why you're even bothering uh, to come up with a theory unless it can be used to make predictions or explain some observations or both. What does this look like in practice? I'm going to give an example from the very early days in my graduate school of a somewhat novel theory that I was involved in constructing. And one of the first papers that I wrote and published while I was in graduate school contributed to the theory of repeat proteins and how they fold. Now, proteins are interesting objects because they're fairly simple in the sense that they're made up of a relatively small number of atoms. 
thousands of atoms, but nonetheless, they exhibit surprisingly complex behavior. Now, as we've discussed before, atoms are themselves fairly close to the most basic objects that we have good theories for. So atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. And that's pretty much at the limit where our useful theories run out at this point. Atoms are pretty close to the most basic objects that we commonly deal with in physical theories. That's all to say that we're fairly close to the bottom of that reductionist hierarchy when we're talking about proteins that I described in the first episode. And one might have an intuition that down there, so to speak, things should be simple, but empirically, with proteins, this is not the case. So I'll give an example of why I say it's not the case that things are very simple. If you were able to watch a protein, which you can't obviously see proteins directly with your eyes, but if you were able to and you slowed down the video by several orders of magnitude so that you could see what was going on, you would see a clump of atoms that's like a ball, so it's fairly globular, and it's maybe rattling around and vibrating. And then, very occasionally, you would see it explode apart. And this is true even if it wasn't impacted by anything, if it was just in water, hanging out by itself. <clears throat> occasionally, you would see it explode apart into a disorganized chain. And that chain would writhe around violently for a little while thereafter. And then at some random time later, it would recollapse into its original globular state. And I said that you can't actually see this with your eyes, which is true, but you can visualize this by watching simulations of proteins in molecular visualization softwares. And I did a lot of this, both at the end of my undergraduate days and then throughout my graduate school. In some sense, this became a hobby of mine. And it was a strange hobby because it would result in my wife walking up behind me at my computer and then looking like she was pretending to have a seizure as she imitated the way the protein wriggled around on the screen. Mmm, chicken. Anyway, that's getting a little bit off track. The point is that the behavior of proteins is surprisingly complex, despite being seemingly quite simple objects. So I mentioned at the top that I was interested in contributing to the theory of repeat proteins in particular, which are proteins that are made up of repeating units, which is to say that they have the same or substantially similar sets of atoms that are chained together multiple times. As an aside, whenever you're able to spot a regularity like this, it's potentially a good opportunity for coming up with useful higher level concepts, which we'll probably talk more about in the next episode or subsequent episodes when we talk about the different levels of understanding. In this case, we're going to think of a protein as consisting of a set of repeats rather than a set of atoms, which is the lower level description of a protein. This is not unlike how chemistry focuses on atoms and their interactions rather than focusing on individual quarks, which is the realm of particle physics. So, what was our theory of repeat proteins? Now, it's hard to explain properly without this podcast dragging on for a lot longer and testing the patience of even our most loyal listeners here at the Wild Truth Chase podcast, but I'll give it a try. Basically, our concepts included foldedness. So this is an elementary concept. 
repeats, which as I mentioned is going to be a part of a protein. And a repeat can be either folded or unfolded, which is usually going to be represented using either a zero for being unfolded or a one for being folded. And proteins is still an important concept at this level of theory. And proteins, as I mentioned, are made up of chains of repeats. So now that we have those basic concepts in place, we can introduce the idea of a folding state. Uh, a protein in this theory is always in one folding state. And each folding state, each repeat is either folded or unfolded. So to put it more concretely, with a protein that has three repeats, one folding state would be one zero zero. And that means that the first repeat is folded and the second and third are unfolded. So one zero zero. Another folding state would be one zero one. In this folding state, the first and third repeats are folded and the second remains unfolded. Rounding out the important basic concepts in this version of the theory are free energy and folding rates. The free energy is going to be assigned to each folding state. And for these purposes, it's simply related to how often in the very long run, so if you were going to observe a protein for a very long time, and at every time step you were to characterize its folding state, the free energy of a folding state is related to how often you would observe the protein in a particular folding state, with higher free energies being states that you observe less often as compared to the others. And folding rates. So roughly speaking, the folding rate is related to how long it will take a protein that starts in the completely unfolded state, so 0, 0, 0 for our three repeat protein example, to make it into the completely folded state, which is 1, 1, 1, where every repeat is folded, or vice versa, depending on the conditions. And so those are all of the, the concepts. We've got foldedness, repeats, proteins, folding states, free energies, and folding rates. Now, as I mentioned, the other aspect of a theory is how these basic concepts are related to each other. And there was really two key relationships that we hypothesized for this level of description of protein folding. And one of them was that proteins can transition between folding states only by changing the foldedness of one repeat at a time, which is to say that a transition from one zero zero to one zero one would be allowed because there the first two repeats remain in the state one zero and the last repeat changes from a zero to a one. However, a transition from one zero zero to one 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 would not be allowed at least directly because that involves changing the foldedness of two repeats at the same time. The second relationship that we hypothesized was that the rate of transition between two folding states, if it's allowed at all by the first rule, has a simple relationship to the difference in the free energies that are assigned to the different folding states, which as I mentioned, are related to how often you would expect to observe each folding state in the long run. And in particular, if the free energy difference is large, the transition rate is going to be low. And if the free energy difference is small, 
the, the transition rate is going to be relatively high. Okay, so what is even all the point of this nonsense? Why should I care? I'm sure I'm hearing people out there asking this. Why should I care? If you apply those relationships to those concepts, it turns out that you're able to make predictions about observations that you make in the lab, which in general is something that people are interested in doing. In particular, you can change the conditions under which the protein is folding and see how the overall folding rate changes, something that it turns out is very hard to do in practice without making these or some other set of enabling assumptions. Furthermore, if your predictions match observations well in ways that are not well recapitulated by competing theories, then one might say that your theory can serve as an explanation of those observations, which is something that we'll discuss in later episodes. If, on the other hand, as is often the case, the predictions of your theory or model do not match observations reasonably well, then it would be a stretch to call it an explanation and your theory would either have to be modified or discarded. In this particular case that I went into detail here in this episode um, of our repeat protein folding theory, the predictions matched the observations well enough that we were able to get the paper published. Now, it's not to say that that's the end of the story. There are many more papers being published every year about the theory of repeat protein folding. It was a somewhat successful description. And so I think that I'm going to leave it there for this week. I hope that walking through an example of a theory was useful in thinking about how theories are formulated. And we will continue to revisit these concepts throughout the season as we talk about what are different levels of understanding. We're going to talk about statistics and probability. What are data generating processes for data? What are the differences between causal and non-causal models? And so forth. And never fear if you are not a fan of proteins, because we will bring in other examples throughout the season and talk about examples in probably in the social sciences, economics, as well as many other fields. And what we'll see is that there are some underlying commonalities between how you formulate and test theories, regardless of the phenomena that you're interested in studying. So I think that will be enough for today. And thanks, everybody, for joining me. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Take care, everybody.
Pode tirar aqui. 